If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. coming near to the end of a section in this gospel. But we still have a little way to go. You can see in verse 22 that he's going through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And so this is really marking a shift where he is heading very deliberately and purposefully to the cross and preaching as he goes. But we're still here in the opening part of Luke 13, and I want us to read from verse number 10. We got as far as verse 9 last time, looking at the parable in verses 6 through 9. But let us read from verse number 10 through verse number 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Pay attention to God's Word, Luke 13, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years, and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Not not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Amen. And may we receive this as the very Word of God into our hearts this evening. Let's pray once again as we look to the Lord's Word. Gracious God, we thank Thee for what we've been singing tonight. Uh, Repeatedly we have been reminded of the extent of Thy mercy and how Thou dost condescend to save sinners in all their plight and need. And many of us here tonight have received this and experienced this. We are people that can truly rejoice in what Thou hast done for us. I pray that that joy may deepen, that our cup will run over, and that we will, even this very evening, afresh experience a great deepening sense of gratitude for what Thou hast done for us. Thou hast heard our pitiful cry. Thou hast seen us in our affliction. Thou hast condescended to us in our need. And we're thankful that what we will read tonight, in part, will represent something of what we have experienced from Thy hand. Such mercy to look upon us 
and deliver us. So God, we pray that should there be any here tonight that are still doubting as to whether thou wilt receive them, may they come as sinners, poor and needy. May they come at the very command of thy word. May they believe and may it please thee to help thou their unbelief. So save, even restore, and heal the backslidings of some that may be gathered in this place tonight. Draw near. Grant us the help of thy Spirit. Please deliver us from the arm of flesh and the meager attempts of man to bring a message. Give help, we cry. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to a section, beloved, where we see a change in the scene. I noted this with you some two weeks ago, that there is a shift from this, this great multitude that gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ to hear His Word, and it closes at verse number 9 of chapter 13. We move then to another scene, where again a crowd are gathered. We don't know how large the synagogue was. We don't know how many people were there, but our Lord Jesus gives Himself to teaching in the synagogue. We know this, we've seen this, in fact, the beginning of his ministry, as Luke records it, as we come into Luke chapter 4, we see how he commences his ministry in this way, going into the synagogue, and on that occasion we see the outright rejection of those that knew him as the carpenter's son. And yet he has continued moving from place to place, entering into synagogues in order to instruct and teach the people. Of course, he would go to Jerusalem on those appointed feast those major feast days, he would make his way there, and he would engage at times in teaching in the temple as well. But the synagogue was the place where he most frequented to instruct the local communities. What we have in verses 10 through 17 is really evidence of what the Lord has already delivered. The parable that we looked at last time of the fig tree in the vineyard puts before us the fact of the, 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 the lack of fruit and represents the nation of Israel, especially the religious elite of the time, in their fruit, their, their barrenness, their spiritual barrenness before God. They had failed to bring forth fruit. They had failed to evidence the real grace of God in their lives. Over and over and over again, they are, they are rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ, and their animosity increases more and more. We have a word used here in verse 17 of his adversaries. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is facing. And he has depicted then this scene in verses 6 through 9 of this barren fig tree. And then Luke brings us into this occasion, this particular scene of being in a synagogue on the Sabbath day that proves the reality of what is going on. These people, these religious leaders, do not bring forth fruit. And so the warning, of course, is to them that if they do not bring forth fruit, they will be cut down. That was a sobering message we looked at two weeks ago. And as we look on in the passage, the sobriety of it only deepens when we think of the reality of what is going on in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we will look at tonight is, in one sense, really encouraging. You have here put on display another miracle of our Lord Jesus Christ that evidences His love for sinners his compassion for the needy, and his willingness to intervene in their lives. But we also have the lamentable condition of those that are religious. 
And so we have this, this, this contrast where the Lord again shows that if you are full of, of a sense of need, if, you, if you're aware of your, your brokenness, if you're in no way boasting of your station in life, He often will come and He will show pity towards such. But if you think that you've accomplished everything you need, if you imagine that you've attained all that God would require, He uses very harsh language. Verse 15, Thou hypocrite, thou hypocrite. I don't know how tonight finds you. I trust that you've come into this place fully aware of your need of Jesus Christ alone. And that you say with the hymn writer, what we sang, Horatius Bonner, not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. There's nothing, nothing that you can bring, nothing that you can do that can bring you near to God. You need Christ. You need His intervening work. You need His atoning blood to cleanse away your sin, without which you will perish. The religious elite would not acknowledge it. I have reminded you repeatedly that it wasn't that they weren't aware. They knew. Nicodemus stands as evidence of that. We know. This is a ruler. This is someone who is at the pinnacle of religious position in Jerusalem at that time. We know. There's no doubting it. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. We're all aware of it. But they live in constant denial of the truth. So tonight we're looking at this passage under the title, Christ's Sympathy in a Crooked Synagogue. Christ's Sympathy in a Crooked Synagogue. The synagogue is crooked because the ruler of the synagogue is crooked. But he shows sympathy to one particular individual that is there, and that is used for the glory of his name. But note with me, first of all, then, the woman's condition. The woman's condition. Here in Luke 13, verse 10, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold... There was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Note here, first of all, her physical ailment. Her physical ailment. She had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. I want you to try and envisage this woman making her way into the place of worship, the synagogue where You didn't have sacrifices, but where prayer was offered and the Word of God was taught. She makes her way in there, and she does so greatly hindered physically. I I was reading J.C. Ryle on this, and he he pointed out just the, the fact that amidst her affliction, she still made her way to the place of worship. I want you to see this woman who is bent almost double, almost in half, her, her face looking to the ground, she, she can't even see barely where she's going. But she moves from her household, from her home, makes her way to the synagogue in her local community that she might hear the Word of God and be among the Lord's people. You come to a passage like this, of course, those of you who are sitting here, I don't need to make application. But the temptation to avoid the house of God Satan is always there to feed that temptation, to give reasons. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's spiritual. But he will feed it. And if anyone, if anyone could have said, not today, not this Sabbath, it would have been this woman. But she makes her way. 
she makes her way to the house of God and what a mercy was in store for her. Some have suggested that she had a certain condition, uh, spondylosis, uh, deformance, I think it's called, uh, a disease of the spine. I don't know if that's what she had. We're not told that. There may not be an exact equivalent today because what she had was unique. There, there's a certain spiritual aspect to this as well that we'll see in just a moment. But I'm reminded of Luke chap, or Matthew rather, chapter 8. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, you'll see just how our Lord Jesus was given to helping such people that were infirmed. Matthew chapter 8. You have him here after healing Peter's mother-in-law. And there's this great kind of swelling uh, awareness of what Christ is able to do. Matthew 8 verse 16 says, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And here we see how there's a, a tying together of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the healing of the multitude. It is, it is a display, it is evidence, an eschatological message to sinners that their only hope in this life and the next, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And He comes on this display of power, healing people amidst their infirmities, delivering them from their physical ailments as, as evidence that if they have any hope of life, any hope of deliverance, it must be through Jesus Christ. It's not that He healed absolutely everyone that was there. It's not that He continues to heal absolutely everyone, even his own people. Afflictions are certainly part of this life, and I'm not going to spend time to prove that from the New Testament. You see it in other parts, even in the time of the apostles, even at times when they had power to heal, similar to our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet still there were individuals that suffered greatly in a physical way. So it's not like all ailments are gone forever in this life, as often you will hear touted by the TV evangelists. But our Lord is displaying that I am common. Through my redemptive work, there is an overcoming of the curse that brings sickness and disease and death. We have seen this also in this very gospel. Luke's gospel, chapter 5. Verse 15, for example. So much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Chapter 8, the opening verses tell us of the women that were greatly helped by him and delivered. Verse 2, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and so on. They ministered unto him of their substance. So this woman that we find in Luke chapter 13, she makes her way to the synagogue on the Sabbath. She comes in as at other times. I don't know if she had heard that Jesus was in the area and she made her way there, motivated by that fact. We're not told that. I don't know whether she was always there every Sabbath day, but I'll tell you this, there's definitely this, this encouragement that there is a place 
There are places that God calls us to be. And when we're there, we place ourselves in the most likely position to be blessed. We, we know this. We say this all the time, even with regard to reformation and revival. It's sovereign. It's utterly sovereign. And yet we pray for it. We pray for it as a recognition that in prayer, in the place of prayer, it's as the boat that sets its sail waiting for the wind. It can't control the wind. It can't force the wind to come. But there's the expectation that the wind will come. And unless the sails are set, there will be no capturing of its power and influence. And so we come to the prayer meeting, we pray. We're in the place where God blesses. We expect Him to bless. And so it is even with regard to your soul. Now, remember this. Perhaps the vast majority of you are not in a place tonight that find yourself so discouraged that you struggle to be in the house of God. You, you, you were looking forward to the Lord's house, being with the Lord's people, hearing the Lord's word, and so on. But the day is likely to come. If you haven't experienced it already, the day is likely to come where you will be literally having to drag yourself out to God's house. And there will be that sense of, I don't want to go for the reasons I've already mentioned. Mental, physical, spiritual. And yet still, still, I want you to lay hold upon the fact that it is, there are certain places where He he's, is pleased to most likely bless His people. The infirmity that she had, the spirit of infirmity, 18 years. The Greek word has the idea of weakness. She had a weakness. I was thinking about it. Really, this weakness came in upon her around the time, roughly, not quite, but around the time when our Luke has told us previously of this 12-year-old Jesus being in the temple, hearing and answering questions and so on. Around that time, 18 years prior, this woman, wherever she was, was afflicted with this infirmity. We're told in Romans 6, verse 19, where Paul writes, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. And, and in that context, he's not talking about physical infirmity. He's talking about spiritual. There, there's a weakness in them. And it's spiritual. And so when you see her infirmity, when it refers to her infirmity, I want you to recognize that she is depicting the spiritual condition of men. They have, they have a spiritual weakness, an inherent weakness that makes it impossible for man to save himself. Just as it was impossible for this woman to look up into the sky, so it is impossible for sinners of their own strength to look up to the God of heaven and cry out for mercy. You can't do it yourself. We've been singing about it. It's all an act of sovereign grace. It's God's sovereign mercy. When He sets His love upon a sinner and reveals Himself to sinners, they can't do it themselves. So this depicts, this physical ailment depicts spiritual reality. She's bowed down, she's looking at the earth, and nothing can help her look up to heaven. Nothing. And if you are here tonight without Christ in rebellion against the gospel not willing to submit to our Lord Jesus Christ, be aware that you don't get to choose the time when you make your peace with God. 
God is sovereign in salvation. And what that should produce in your heart is a sense of a fear of His name. You should fear Him. Cry out for mercy. Cry out that He might intervene in your condition and save your soul. But also there is her spiritual affliction, not only her physical ailment, bowed down, looking to the earth, unable to look up to heaven, so broken, so weakened, in such pain and agony as we can only imagine. There is a spiritual affliction here as well. We're told specifically in verse 16, when our Lord interjects against the ruler of the synagogue, He says, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You read that and you may wonder, how? How how does Satan do this? And how might we prevent it? I think the only way to understand this, and of course there are mysteries in this, but the only way to understand this is what we have revealed to us in the opening chapters of Job. You have one who is intent on destroying souls. He seeks to destroy men. And he has taken note of Job, and he he acknowledges that God has put a hedge around him and so on, and, and God gives him permission. Permission to afflict him physically and in other ways. In this particular instance, God has given Satan permission to bind them in this particular infirmity. He has been allowed, he has, in the providence of God, been permitted to and so envelop and control this woman in this way for 18 years. Now, Satan has a certain influence upon all that are unregenerate. He does. To varying degrees, he influences men. You find that in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over there. It's very, very familiar, I'm sure, to many of you, but there may be some of you that aren't so familiar. Ephesians chapter 2. Apostle Paul writing to this mixed church of Jew and Gentile. He reminds them of what God had done for them. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened or made alive. You were dead. You were dead, but he made you alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And that deadness was expressed in this way, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, and so on. So this is how we were, and Satan has a part in this. There's this prince of the power of the air, there's this satanic influence constantly working in those that are children of disobedience, language that speaks of the unregenerate, those without spiritual life. And so he always seizes upon the opportunity to blind the minds of them which believe not. But if he can go, if he can go further than that, he will. If he gets permission to so afflict people in further ways, to destroy them, to kill them, to, to afflict them in, in all sorts of ways that perhaps we can't really fully understand. He will take it. He thrives in destroying men. 
This is his business. He cannot attack God directly, so he attacks those made in the image of God. And this woman had lived for 18 years with a peculiar affliction upon her body. Satan has kept her. No medicine, no doctors, no helpers at all could loose her from this bondage that she was in. And there's a very real sense in which Satan does the same. Now, now again, there, there are limits to what he can do. He doesn't have free reign entirely over the souls of men. God is sovereign over the souls of men. But I don't know, and you don't know, how he will come and attack you, how he will gain entrance and influence in your life. The only way to be safe is in union with Christ. The only refuge for sinners is in Christ. The only place where Satan can't get a hold to utterly destroy is in Christ. Even there he may be permitted to afflict. But the safest place on earth is in Christ. Even with certain privileges, it doesn't remove the likelihood of such afflictions as these. Jesus makes note of the fact in verse 16, she is a daughter of Abraham. So she has the greatest privileges that one could ask for, spiritually speaking. She sees her line all the way back to Abraham. And there's a danger that in those spiritual advantages, we assume we have everything we need. I've mentioned this many times, so I'll not belabor the point. But I hope we understand by now in this place that there's, there are no advantages that you can enumerate that can substitute the person and work of Jesus Christ and your faith in Him alone. Secondly, we have the Savior's compassion. We have not only the woman's condition, but the Savior's compassion. I love this. This woman comes in, is, is, try to put yourself there, and it's all your, your broken condition, the weakness of the body, the pain, every step she felt. She drags herself to the synagogue, and she is to be met with such compassion as is found only in our Lord Jesus Christ I want us to see two things here, what Christ did for her, and then we'll see also how the woman responds to Christ. What Christ did for her. First of all, He sees her. Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, He saw her. Now the Scriptures pull in all sorts of language with regard to the desire of sinners to be seen by God. We want to be seen by God. Now, of course, Adam, in his folly, made the decision to try to flee the presence of God, to not be seen by God. That's foolish. And he soon learned that. He's running away from God, running out of the presence of God. To where? Where, where are you going, Adam? What are you going to do? There's no hope for you. What he really needed was to be seen by the Lord, which he was. And God saw his need and provided for his soul. In Deuteronomy 26, 15, we find a prayer that includes these words, Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven and bless thy people Israel. Look down. And you have language like this throughout the Old Testament. 
Look down from heaven, Psalm 80, 14, 85, 11, Isaiah 63, 15. Look down from heaven. Look at us, Lord. See us in our condition. Bless us. Deliver us. Help us. But never did God so look upon the plight of man as when he took flesh and dwelt among us. And so when you have little lines like this, Jesus saw her, don't pass over that. Don't pass over that. This incomprehensible God makes himself knowable to sinners and condescends to see them in their need. There are those, and there are many, and they're crying out just to be seen. Sometimes they don't even know that that's what's going on in their hearts. You have, you have children, children that are acting up, misbehaving. And sometimes as adults, we look at them and we just see the, 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 the poor behavior, the, the disobedience and so on. If you ask the child what they want, they don't know. But what they're looking for is just to be seen. They're in an environment where the parents are so busy, they, they, they never pay attention, where if they come to show a drawing or something else, the, the parents can't seem to take even a minute to look at them or pay attention to them or show interest in them. And so they, they start, they start to play up, they start this, they, just messing around, class clown and all the rest of it. They just want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They feel invisible. And so they exaggerate their behavior. Maybe you wonder if anyone sees you. Perhaps this is how you come to God's house. Kind of sneak in. I imagine that's how this woman came into the synagogue. Sneak in. Sit at the back. Knowing no one really wants to deal with her anyway. I mean, we've dealt with this, haven't we? You know, earlier, the, the default position with regard to negative experiences in life, the Jews thought God's judgment's upon you. They would distance themselves from those that had infirmities like this, blindness and infirmities of this nature. God must be against this person. So she probably came in, put herself in a place where she was less likely to be seen or in any way distract in what was going on. And of course, she's, her stature even is... is, is almost halved, she's, she's bent down, she's, she's easy to miss. But Jesus saw her. He saw her. It's okay to pray 
When you feel like you're not seen or you wonder, who cares? It's okay to pray, Lord, look down. Look at me. Give me a sense that I am seen by you. The Lord does see. He sees the broken in heart. He sees the contrite in spirit. He sees those that have been crushed by various providences. He not only sees her, he speaks to her. In the middle of his teaching, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman. He saw her, verse 12, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. In the middle of the sermon, in the middle of his message, he has a personal word for her. Is that not how you come to God's house? Is there not at least a part of the motivation? It's not all of it. Your first motivation is to offer praise to God. He is worthy of it. You may never feel anything. It's not about your feelings. It's about rendering to your God what is due. But there is a desire in our hearts, is there not? In the people of God, to hear that word from the Lord. To be as Samuel when God is calling out and being instructed from the earliest years of his life that God is calling you. And he continues to speak, to speak to his people. This is the desire of our hearts when we open the word. Lord, speak. Now, there's a sense, and it's true. Every time you open the Bible and you read the words, God is speaking. That's true. We're not going to deny that aspect. But you ought to be aware of the fact, you ought to be conscious of the fact that God speaks in ways that are profoundly personal. Where He is meeting you at the point of your need. And it ought to be the ongoing prayer in this house that that is what people experience. And we want the Word to be accurately exegeted, considered soberly, and an honor to who the Lord is and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to hear from the Lord, don't we? And she gets His personal word. She heard a message that changed her life forever. And He says, Thou art loosed. Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Oh, think of all the doctors she went to, all the medicine that she may have taken, all the various potions and diets and exercises and therapy and everything. And with a word, thou art loosed. That is to say, set free. Yes, John 8, 36 is on display. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. It's very visible here. Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And Christ loosens souls. He sets souls free. And that freedom isn't to be a momentary experience, but an ongoing one. And this was the, the, the part of the broken-hearted nature of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the churches of Galatia. Because of, as a people they had been set free, but now they were, they were binding themselves and putting themselves in bondage. 
So he writes in Galatians 5, 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty with where, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to salvation by works. Don't go back to the sacrifices. Don't go back to imagining that it's by circumcision and other religious rites that you're made to be justified before God. Don't. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. She was made free with a word. With a word. Ah, yes. <laughs> there's, there, 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 are few, there are few joys greater than witnessing a soul be loosed from their sins with one word from the Lord Jesus. And they hear all thousands of words from the preacher, thousands of words from family and friends, and then Christ comes with a personal word, and they are loosed forevermore. So he sees her, he speaks to her, and he straightens her. Verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. There's no explanation for this. This is a miracle. He lays his hand. He didn't have to do that. There were other occasions where he never touched the person. He didn't have to, but often he would give a visual, a very clear evidence. Lays his hand on her and immediately she is made straight. She stands upright. So this is what Christ did for her, and this is what Christ will do for you. He sees you amidst your plight. He does. He sees you. Oh, sinner, He sees you. Don't don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Don't imagine, I'm too great a sinner. He would never look on me. Nonsense. Being such a great sinner, acknowledging your sins, He would love to save you so that you could be a, a praise of the greatness of His work and His power to deliver. He loves doing that. He loves saving great sinners. But note not only what Christ did for her, but how the woman responds to Christ, how, he resp- how she responds to his compassion. Now, this, some of this is more inferred or implied than is expressed clearly. But when she stands up straight, well, we know uh, one thing's for sure, she had new sight, didn't she? And how she saw the world changed right in that moment. <laughs> At one moment, all she could see is her own feet and the feet of other people. She can't see anything really beyond that. She's bent double. She can't see anything. All she sees is this earth. Then, in a moment, she, she stands up straight. She can see the world. She can look to the God of heaven. And it changes everything for her. Being able to see. And of course, the first person she saw had to be the Lord Jesus, wouldn't it? That's who she saw, where the voice was coming from. I mean, I, I don't know how she made her, <laughs> you know, bent over and trying to make her way to the Lord Jesus. Going by what she could hear, unable to really see where he was, making her way there. And then she stands up and she locks eyes with him and sees in his eye compassion she has never witnessed before. She had new sight. The Lord will give you that. If you're not saved, you, you are in the condition of what the prophet Isaiah speaks of. There is no beauty in him that you should desire him. You can't see his beauty. And the reason you can't see his beauty is because you don't understand your own ugliness. Well, that's, that sounds offensive, but it's true. 
It's when you understand the depth of your own depravity, the wickedness of your own heart, the extent of your own sin. And you cry out, what am I going to do? I'm a sinner condemned. I'm going to be judged before the living God. Every idle word that men shall speak, they will give account thereof in the day of judgment. What am I going to do? God puts forth His Son, sets Him up, says, look and live. Look and live. Then you see a beauty in Him. Oh, He was... He appeared to be little different to physically to anyone else. It was around, but that woman saw in him something, a beauty that she could see in no other. So it is for every believer. She also had a new standing. Instead of shuffling around with aches and pains, Now she is standing upright. She's, I am assuming, able to make great strides and move around. Whatever she had sought to do as a daughter of Abraham, moving around, trying to do whatever religiously she could do, it it was it was so pathetic looking. You know, really watching her would be a pathetic sight. Eighteen years of pathetically moving around from place to place. Now she stands up. Now she's got a stride in her step. Now she has a, a spring in her step as well. Walking with the Lord. And she had a new song, didn't she? What David spoke of in Psalm 40 and what even the book of Revelation speaks of that God's people have. He glorified God, verse 13. Glorified God. Immediately burst forth. (laughs) She doesn't wait for the song leader. She doesn't wait for... Anyone to begin, it just spontaneously and naturally bursts forth from her heart. Now, things should be done decently in order in God's house. But, but, should there be an occasion where someone is under the weight of their sin, condemned, someone is broken and lost and doesn't know what to do, and in the midst of a sermon has her eyes fixed on Christ and begins to sing praises unto God and says, I would have no problem. If I understood the context and why they were singing, I would have no problem whatsoever with that. This woman has been loosed from her infirmity 18 years. There's some soul to be here 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 80 years under an infirmity of sin. All of a sudden to be converted and begins to spontaneously break out in song, I would have no problem with that whatsoever. There's reason that they might sing. Thirdly, we have also the ruler's corruption. We have seen the woman's condition, the Savior's compassion, the ruler's corruption. Now, this is sad. We read this with no delight whatsoever. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. And then therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. His legalism, first of all, is on display here. He has absolutely no respect for what has happened. No, no sense of, of understanding of what is going on. Immediately he goes to man-made rules regarding the Sabbath. 
Nowhere, nowhere in the Word of God was there ever expression that we are not to show mercy on the Sabbath day. And there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. One which our Lord uses on another occasion where He speaks of David and his men taking the showbread in order to show that that God God is not in the business of of keeping men in bondage bondage just because it's the Sabbath day. So as legalism becomes clear, this rule of the synagogue has imbibed all sorts of, of doctrines of men And he sees the Lord Jesus showing mercy to the soul on the Sabbath day and he immediately runs and says, this ought not to be done. And the coward that he is, of course, he doesn't even address the Lord Jesus himself. He said unto the people, he looks to the rest. He's trying to prevent their influence. He's trying to turn them away from the Lord Jesus and what has just happened. His legalism. His lovelessness. There's no love in this man whatsoever. He answers with indignation. I no doubt that people could see it. The anger within his heart. Maybe it could be heard in the tone of voice. There's no love. He is harsh and merciless and shows indignation to this act. And of course, his whole argument is with regard to the Sabbath day. And yet, and yet they had turned the Sabbath day, which was the best day of the week, they turned it into a burden. I've mentioned it many times. I underline it. The Sabbath was a mercy. It was, it was there from the beginning. And it is stated within the Decalogue when a people are coming out of bondage, recognizing their freedom in one whole day. You're not in bondage. You're not in bondage. That's why our Lord then goes on to say, In verse 16, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day. Like, ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? This is the perfect day. The perfect day. Is this not what happened to our fathers when they were loosed from their bondage under the Egyptians? Is this not what he did? He he looses and sets people free and gives them a day. Read Deuteronomy 5. Gives them a day to remember when they were a bondman in Egypt. The, the day of rest, which is what Sabbath means. The day of rest is a day of remembering. We are a set free people. We are no longer under bondage. And what a perfect opportunity when in the synagogue this poor bound woman in bondage to her infirmity and by Satan's activity is set free. It's a great illustration of what the Sabbath is all about. And that's why our services should have within them, though not exclusively, they should have within them an evangelical element. Yes, feed the flock of God, but also should there be in our midst those still in unbelief and without Christ, they need to be reached and to know that Christ is in the business of setting men free. And He will set them free. He will set you free. No love. No love whatsoever. The law never condemned, never condemned mercy on the appointed day of rest. His legalism, his lovelessness, and his lies. Verse verse 15, the Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, and a hypocrite is just a liar. 
Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Don't you show mercy to your beasts? You show mercy to your beasts? As you ought. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound low these eighteen years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? You, 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 live a, you, live, you live a lie. And you keep these people under bondage of rules and regulations never stipulated by God. And you take a blessing and you make it into a burden. And Christ comes, and that's why so many times he did this on the Sabbath day, because it was one of those visible expressions of their turning away from the Word of God. And he would regularly put his hand upon souls and deliver them publicly so that he would underline, he would underline the fact this is perfectly legal. And you have taken the commandments of men and substituted them for the Word of God. Our Lord then says, or after he says these things, verse 17, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. There there were many of them. I don't know how many. But there are certainly those that had their allegiance to the ruler of the synagogue. (laughs) Again, I quote it many times, that text where our Lord says, how can you believe that receive honor one of another? You can't do it. See, you've made an idol out of the honor of man, and you can't believe. can't be done. Until you surrender your worship of man, you'll, it's not even possible for you to believe. Which underscores an important point for all of us. If you, if you live under the burden of what men think about you, and that dictates what you do and what you believe, then you, you will never, ever believe. You must understand what God has said and what God requires. So these adversaries turn, and in the midst of it, all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, I don't know just how deep this joy went. I don't know to what extent it was redemptive, salvific. Perhaps they would soon turn on him and cry, crucify him. But whatever the case, our Lord had dealt with this matter in a way that could not be refuted by his enemies. Once again, he shows his mercy and compassion amidst the corruption of the religious elite of his day. And the passage is a warning to his beloved. It's a warning to all, all of us. The danger of getting entrenched into a way of thinking where we multiply certain expectations that actually the Word of God has not dealt with. And when we do not see these things, we begin to make judgments and respond in a way that exhibits the lack of compassion that the ruler exhibited on that day. We have to be so careful that our convictions are fully and clearly delineated from the Word of God. And we also, even where we establish them, must be, in a fashion, compassionate to those that may not entirely see it yet. If you're to be found in one place or the other, in terms of standing where our Lord Jesus stood, or standing where the, the, 
the ruler of the synagogue stood, you know where you want to be. Was this woman perfect? Far from it. Had she invited Satan into her life in some fashion? Possibly. We don't know. We don't know what the instrument was. We don't know how it initially came to pass. We don't know how wicked her life may have been. Certainly she was a sinner. But he shows compassion. Compassion. And it's so crucial that as a people, as believers, as followers of Christ, we are, we are compassionate. We have no place to constantly be in judgment over people. And the Lord hates such. And he will say, thou hypocrite. Thou hypocrite. Because you see, the Lord, the Lord knows. He knows where, where you're expecting perfect adherence. He knows exactly where you don't match up and where, where the contradictions exist in your own life. God's house is to be a place where we understand that sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And we're all at different places. Growing, I hope. Advancing, I hope. Being sanctified more and more by the Spirit and by the work of the Word in our hearts. But if you see failures in people's Lives, if you see shortcomings in their thinking and their actions, be very hesitant to take the place of the religious elite so swift to make judgments upon men. Try to maintain expectations that perhaps even aren't, aren't even expressed clearly by the word. Where are you tonight? Has the Lord spoken to your heart? Are you like this woman? Do you have an infirmity of sin, bondage to habits? Are you needing to be set free? Don't look for a flash of light. Don't look for something dramatic. There was nothing dramatic here. Christ just looked and spoke to her. Yes, he laid his hand on her. Yes, she was delivered in a miracle. But it was all depicting the spiritual truth. By a look, by a word, he saved sinners. I say to you in the words of Scripture again, look and live. And may God give you grace so to do. Let's bow together in prayer. Remind you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He sees you where you are, he knows exactly what you need. He is able, he is willing, 
doubt no more. Our Father, we pray, please give, give that grace that is needed and intervene in the affairs of souls that are yet in their sin. We pray that Thou wilt tenderly speak to them. May they know the striving work of the Spirit. And may it please Thee to draw them so tenderly, gently, but effectively into the arms of the Lord Jesus. We're thankful that power belongs unto God. We ask that Thou wilt display Thy healing, saving power. In the lives of those that are lost. Be with us in our conversation, our fellowship here. May the word not be lost. May it not be stolen by the fowls of the air. Be with those who go directly home and be also with those that meet downstairs for fellowship and be in those conversations. Bless the food to us. And walk with us through this week, we pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.